0: Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today's Tuesday, June 16th. Stocks are way up. Former eBay executives are going down. And we're focused on how the city of Seattle, an early coronavirus hotspot, is navigating the possibility of a second wave.
1: These people have taken over a vast part, a major part, a very good part of a place called Seattle.
0: So by now, you've probably heard that Seattle has a new neighborhood of sorts. It's called Chaz the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Six city blocks that's one part perpetual protest, one part outdoor street fair. Included inside of Chaz is a police precinct building that was abandoned and homes of lots of Seattle residents who aren't necessarily part of what's happening right outside their doors. All of this, of course, comes against the backdrop of COVID-19. Seattle, like most other US cities, large and small, is facing massive revenue shortfalls from the shutdowns, meaning there are going to need to be major cuts. But the city also needs to plan how to handle the possibility of new outbreaks and new safety measures when the weather cools. It is the challenge facing American cities. President Trump has said that Seattle leaders must evict Chaz. Of the country, he said he can't shut it down again and won't. We'll dig into what really comes next with Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin right after this. We're joined now by Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin. Mayor, you in Seattle were one of the first cities in America to really start shutdowns in terms of COVID well before a lot of other cities did, certainly long before the federal government was seriously talking about it. When you think of the past couple weeks in terms of the protests over George Floyd's killing, the Chaz zone in the city, has the last couple weeks kind of blown your modeling or your reopening plans?
1: We don't know yet. Back up a little bit, I think one of the things that was really hard because as we were one of the first cities as there was no playbook. And we ended up in the position we were is because the federal government now well-documented had the testing was so deficient and messed up that by the time we saw the cases in our city, it was too late to do some of the preventative things we had to go into shutdown mode to stop the transmission of the virus. We got to the point where our modeling going into 2 weeks ago showed that about 95 or 97% of the people in King County had not been exposed to the virus. Our actions did a really good job of slowing that transmission. The downside was they showed that we were vulnerable. So we've been working really hard in those intervening months knowing that as we opened up our businesses that we had to have better radar to see what was happening with the virus. And so we have stood up really robust testing. And I made the decision of mayor once we saw all of the protests that we really wanted to encourage people to get tested, even if they didn't have symptoms.
0: Do you have a sense of how many people have gotten tested and have said to the doctors or the tester, I was in a protest. I don't have symptoms, but I want to check out.
1: Many have been tested and we've only had four positive. And in our testing sites in total, right around one percent, have tested positive, which is a really good thing. And that's two weeks into the protests here. So obviously there's an incubation period and we really are still trying to get the message out to people that they still have to mask, they still have to socially distance, have the hygiene. But if they're in close proximity, really encouraging people to get tested so that we can get contact tracing and isolation if necessary. So far, we haven't seen an uptick because of the protest, But we also know that given the history of this virus, from the time you contract to when you show symptoms to when you get tested can be about two weeks. So we think the first week of protests, which were some of the largest and some of people most proximate, that there's no indication that that has led to increase in numbers yet.
0: If that proves out, and I think I asked at the beginning, you know, if the protests have kind of blown up some of your modeling, is it now actually going to inform your decision making when it comes to reopening? In other words, if we get past that incubation period and you don't see a major uptick in infections and you know you had a lot of people out in the street who might have been wearing masks but almost couldn't be social distancing by design, does that Does that mean you feel you can reopen faster because this seemed to be a test case and you passed?
1: No, I think it's a little more complex than that. First, I think many people at the outset had supposed the transmission of the virus would be less in an outdoor setting. It's one of the reasons as we reopened, one of the first things reopened for restaurants was outdoor seating versus indoor seating. And some of the data we're getting out of China and Italy confirmed that the indoor setting is particularly virulent. The second thing is we started at a base where only we think about 95% of the people had not been exposed to the virus. And so the ability to see that exponential growth in the early weeks is minimal just because of how the virus spreads. So we don't have pure comfort from it. We think it's a good sign. But I think we want to get all the data to see what the impacts are there. If people do test positive, which types of protests that they were taking place in, what other things there might be that they came into contact someone with the virus.
0: You talked about how you asked people who were at protests to get themselves tested inside the CHAZ zone. Are you putting testing inside of there?
1: Yeah, we're working on some doing insight using our mobile testing teams. We haven't had that yet, but we do have have access and we have a lot of information.
0: Mayor Durkin, there's been a lot of talk, and you've heard this out of the White House particularly, that America's economy isn't going to be shut down again. There might be outbreaks, there might be flare-ups, but we're not going to shut down again. When you think of Seattle, how concerned are you that there could be a true second wave in the fall? And if there is, are you prepared to lock the city down again as you did in March?
1: We are preparing as if there will be a second wave, and it would be irresponsible not to. I think that second wave could be complicated by the fact that it's also flu season, which already puts a burden on our healthcare system and our hospitals. And remember, some of the lockdown was to bend the curve to avoid people overwhelming the hospital system. So the number one thing we can do as a city to prevent lockdown is to have adequate testing and contact tracing.
0: Were there to be a second wave, do you think you're prepared for it in the way that kids would still be able to go to school, businesses would still be able to open or stay open?
1: I think we have to look at the reopening models in relation to our capacity to test, and not just in Seattle, but in King County where we are and the state as a whole. Because as we've seen with the introduction of the virus, because we travel as a society, the virus can take hold really quickly. So I think we have in place what we need now, but we're in deep conversations with the state and with our public health officials and how we even ramp up more the ability to test and particularly to contact, trace, and isolate.
0: Obviously, Seattle, like every city and town in America, has taken a major revenue hit over the last couple of months, you know, compared to what you had been projecting in your budgets. There has obviously been a move, including by those in the CHAZ zone, to uh, whether you want to say defund the police or redirect resources, financial resources, from the police elsewhere. You've said you do not support the idea of taking 50, of the police budget and redirecting it. Of the current budgeted police budget, if nothing were to change, how much would they even be able to get, given that it would seem you're gonna have to cut all over the place?
1: Every one of our departments is taking a significant cut.
0: How big are the police taking?
1: They're gonna take the same as everyone else. We're gonna do 10% of every department around that amount.
0: Does that mean that the disagreement in part between you and some of the kind of defund advocates in Seattle isn't about the concept, but is about the numbers? In other words, it sounds like what you're saying is I am interested in reallocating some of the police budget elsewhere. I just don't agree with the percentage that is being advocated for.
1: I think it's a two-part conversation. We have to reallocate parts of the budget and take things out of the police department that shouldn't be there, and we will reduce that budget. And we have to rethink what remains in the police department and see what we can do. But we also have to make investments greater than that in community if we want to make real. And so I don't think it's an either-or. I think we have to do all of those things to move
0: forward. But hard when you've got to cut your budget.
1: It is hard, but if we are truly going to make cultural shifts... We have to be willing to say, let's build the departments we want and we need and that this moment demands, rather than how do we start with what we have and just start chipping away an arbitrary number.
0: Mayor Jenny Durkin of Seattle, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Take care. Welcome back. What we're watching today is eBay, where six former workers have been charged with stalking and harassing a Massachusetts couple who publish an e-commerce blog that had criticized the company. In an era when lots of Silicon Valley behavior is questionable or even deplorable, this might be the most nefarious. The six employees, one of whom was actually eBay's director of safety and security, are alleged to have sent a fetal pig to the couple, sent them live cockroaches, bat feces, delivered a funeral wreath alongside a copy of a book about losing a spouse, and to top it off repeatedly put an ad on Craigslist about how the couple were swingers complete with their address and an invitation to come over anytime. The big question now is when we will hear from eBay's CEO at the time, Devin Wenig, who apparently texted quote, take her down after the e-commerce blog ran a critical item. So far, Wenig has been silent. We're also watching President Trump's executive order on police reform announced today from the Rose Garden and if Congress will feel it goes far enough. Chances are it won't. The EO ties federal police grants to local police forces, no longer using chokeholds in most situations, and the creation of a national database for police misconduct. And finally, we're watching Germany, which today invested 300 million euros into CureVac, a biotech startup that's developing a COVID-19 vaccine. This was an explicitly protective move designed to stop CureVac from being bought by a foreign investor or having its headquarters relocated. And this comes after a report in the German media, which has never really been proven or disproven that the White House had reached out to CureVac about maybe buying a stake. The bottom line here is that the first step is getting a vaccine, but the second step is deciding which populations get vaccinated first. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great National Fudge Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.